Hey, good evening. Yeah. Um, hey. Um, man, praise God for this. Uh, I am Ben. I am your uh, moderately okay to bad, fair preacher tonight. What was it? Decent to fair. Decent to fair. We're going to be, we're going we're gonna to shoot for par for this sermon we're going to see how I do there. Um, <laughs> hey, I love being with you guys. Uh, I do want to reiterate, too, uh, before I jump into this. Uh, we are serving. Josh talked about it, but he didn't do a very good job at it because um, he's just not a good communicator or person. But um, we, uh, we've got these flyers on your seat, man. We really, we, we talk such a good, big game about, man, our call to be ambassadors of Christ and our call as followers of Christ who surrender their life to the gospel. If, if that's you, and if you've surrendered your life to Christ, to then go and do, and to go and love, and to go and be restorers for the city that we live in. And so um, that's something that you hear in sermons a lot, but man, we were like, man, how are we really doing that? And we have all these opportunities to do that, and they're on the board every week, and we've got people in this flock constantly serving in the city and, and being restorers in the city, but we thought, man, let's just highlight one big, one big Saturday and just encourage everybody to show up. So um, we really mean it. I, I really would encourage you to show up. I think my boys are coming, so that'll be an adventure. Have we decided if our boys are coming, babe? We're deciding right now. Are they going to come? Should they? Maybe Miles, we can leave with Nani. We're going to figure it out together later, and then we're going to let you guys know. But um, uh, yeah, so we just believe in, in serving. And so meet us in the parking garage on Saturday at 7.50 in the morning. We'll carpool together, and we will get to be the hands and feet of Christ. And if you're like, man, that's intimidating, this is a really, really good on-ramp. This is a really, really good on-ramp for you to start being obedient and serving outside of your comfort zone. And so join us for that, please. Um, I, I, think, I think it'll make an impact in your life, not just in the lives of the people that we're going to serve. So, um, yeah. Okay, here's where we're going tonight. We are in Revelation. We're doing a series in Revelation. On uh, chapters 2 and 3 of the last book of the Bible, we see Jesus show up to John, the author of this book, and, uh, and he calls out these seven churches. And he addresses seven churches uh, and, and Jesus Christ speaks over them, and he, some of them, he says, man, you guys are doing great, keep it up, you're, you're killing it, good job. Others of them, he's like, you guys are doing this good, but man, you got some major blind spots. Uh, and then some of them, he's like, man, you guys just are just butchering it. You are, you're dropping the ball. And so uh, these have been such an interesting thing to study, challenging and convicting for, for us to walk through. And so that's where we're going. We're going to be in the third church in chapter 2. Um, it's, uh, it's the church of Pergamum. And while you're flipping there, uh, I was reminded of this story uh, that, uh, that this, this kind of will segue into, I think, really nicely. Uh, I officiate some weddings, right? Like that's something I'm a young adult pastor, and so sometimes people get married, and they're like, hey, you should marry me. Um, and so I'm like, all right, cool. And I do that. But the second wedding I ever did, um, I did not do a good job. Um, it was, uh, it was this wedding. I'm not going to use their names because I think they're going to be podcasting this thing. And so um, I'm not going to use their names. But uh, I was actually started off good. It was the second wedding. And I was, I mean, I was, I was good. I mean, I was good. I was like not messing up words. And I looked good. I looked real good. Uh, I had a suit on and a tie that clipped on. And I was looking real good. And I was doing my thing, and I was, like, saying vows, and they were repeating, and it was, like, it was great, and it was awesome, and everything was great. And then I got to, like, through the vows and through the exchange of rings. And then you kind of start to land the plane of the wedding ceremony. And so I started to land the plane, and I realized, so after you do the I now pronounce you man and wife, then the kiss, and then after that, the last thing, 
like the plane landing for the whole wedding ceremony that I was, by the way, I was crushing it at, uh, but the whole landing is, I am now pleased to introduce to you for the very first time, Mr. and Mrs., and then you say their name. And as I was, you know, kind of getting close to that part, I realized while standing at the altar in front of them, I did not know his last name. I had no idea what his last name was. And I don't know how I got to that point in life to be doing their wedding and not know his, because I don't know if you knew this, but in our current culture, usually the woman takes the man's last name, and I knew her last name. She's great. I know her real well. He was just George. I said his name. So he was George, <laughs> right? You know what's worse? You know what's worse? It, it was George and Amy who is my mother-in-law. So it was my mother-in-law. So I was officiating the wedding of my mother-in-law as she married George. And I know my mother-in-law because I married her daughter and we're close and she's awesome. And she's an awesome mother-in-law. And I just knew him as George. He was just always George and we love George and he's great and he's awesome. But I had no clue what his last name was. And I didn't realize I didn't know it until the end of the wedding that I was pronouncing in front of all of their friends and family. And uh, that's a disaster, guys. So I did what any amazing communicator would do. Um, I learned this from Josh. Uh, I, just, I just circled the plane. I just kept going. I just drug that thing on, and I just kind of kept, I was like, I, now I have a poem I'm going to read, and I just started rambling, and now we're going to do a dance over here, and look at this. And I was like scanning the room desperately, trying to see his name. It's a wedding. So I thought, I was like, maybe it's like a, there's a big like name on the cake or something, and so I'm like looking for the cake while I'm talking, and I'm looking for the program, you know, they've got the programs in the front row, and I'm like, what is, and I'm trying to like zoom in to see what his name is on the freaking program, and I can't see it. And the grandma like has her finger over the word, and I'm like, God. So I just circled and circled and then just crashed that thing into the ground. Just crashed it. They kissed, and I just did the whole, I'm now pleased to introduce for the very first time, Mr. and Mrs. That's what I did. Just, just blurred and like seizured. And Tourette's just right through the end of that. Uh, yeah. Their marriage is great, though. I ruined the wedding ceremony. The marriage is great, though, so I didn't ruin their marriage uh, just that day. And my wife is obviously, like, it's her mom, and so she's, like, there as, like, a, a matron of honor. And she, like, was, it was so obvious to her because she was like, he doesn't know the name. He doesn't know the name. So. It was a disaster. Here's where I'm going with that. Um, <laughs> the, the church in Pergamum um, they do a lot of great things. They do a lot of great things. But it seems like they get called out as they get to the altar of Jesus and they're like, oh crap. We got some major, we're missing some major pieces of information. We've got some major parts of our theology that we have compromised. And because of that, they're standing before the altar of Jesus. And Jesus is like, hey, this is going good, this is going good. But man, there's some major things you're missing. Some information that you are lacking in regards to me and some things that you're compromising where you're not really getting to see me or know me. And so we have this, this church that's getting called out to say, hey, don't compromise. Know me. Know who I am. So that's where we're going. Look at verse 12 is where we're picking up in chapter 2. This is what it says. We'll throw the, uh, the scripture up on the screen if that's helpful to you. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, 
the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So first of all, this is some intense imagery that Jesus is using to describe himself as the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. And we're going to circle back around later and see why that's so significant. So verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So let's give us some context here. Uh, Pretty intense stuff, right? This church is planted where Satan dwells. And so what was happening in Pergamum at the time was this was the capital of of worship of false gods. This was the capital of imperial worship. Uh, it was the capital, it, it had a huge temple to Zeus. And so because of that, there was just some crazy, crazy, wicked, demonic things happening in the, the town of Pergamum where these believers and this, this small church was growing and trying to thrive and trying to be obedient. And so they're planted in this area that is, uh, has just an immense amount of persecution. I mean, think about it. This is the first century church, this first wave of of believers who have put their faith in Christ and they're trying to look like Christ and glorify Jesus Christ, and they are planted in a place that hates them. To the point where he even references here in Revelation 2 this guy Antipas who is who was martyred, and most people believe that he was a bishop of that church. So think of like, man, this guy was one of the main leaders over that church, and, and history would say that that guy was then taken, and he was killed in a massive vat of boiling water during a, a satanic of a, of a ritual where they were worshiping false gods. And so they took that pastor, and they threw him in that vat of boiling water and killed him. And this is still his flock still existing that watched their pastor go get killed. And so, so this is the context we have, and he's com- commending them. Jesus is saying, man, good job. Good job for holding fast to the name of Christ. Which, let's just be honest, man, we don't face that kind of persecution. You know, we don't, we don't face this kind of persecution. So for us as believers, we should be challenged and convicted and encouraged by our brothers to see a church, and, and they're all throughout our world still that are being persecuted and and it means life or death. It means family members being killed. It means, but they're standing strong in the name of Jesus. So, man, what a, what a major pat on the bat, back by Jesus. But then he says, man, I got, some, I got some critique, though. I got a blind spot for you. So look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of ba- Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So here's what's happening. Um, this, here's where he calls them out. He says, hey, man, you guys are doing great. You're staying strong. Uh, even through persecution, you are holding on to this name. Of you, you admit, yes, I'm a follower of Christ. We're not going to back away from that. But you've also done something that's uh, pretty dangerous. And you have allowed and compromised into your crowd these two theological camps. Balaam, um, who, who were followers of this Balak thing, which we're going to talk about here in a second, and then also the Nicolaitans. And so this is a reference to, to Numbers chapter 22. Uh, there's Numbers 22, 23, and 24 unpack this story. Uh, in the Old Testament, which a lot of the Jews would have been really familiar with at the time, and in the book of Numbers, we see this story. And it goes over three chapters, and it's this King Balak. And Balak is the king of Moab, and he, he, he rules over this uh, wicked country, and in this, in this time period, the Israelites have left Egypt. So if you remember the whole story of Moses and all the plagues, and they walk across the Red Sea, 
the, the uh, Israelite community has been freed from Egypt, and now they're in the desert. But they're growing, and God is prospering them. And, and there's this leader that's emerged, Joshua. And they're winning battles, and, they're, and they've become this massive, massive thing, this massive community of people that are without a home, without a nation, and yet there's this massive group of people who are worshiping the one true God, Yahweh. And so they're in the wilderness. And so this king of Moab kind of comes out to his porch one day, and he's like, oh, crap. There is this massive, massive community of people that are out there in the desert, and, and I'm here in my kingdom, and I don't think I could stop them. I mean, God's hand is on them. They're doing something right, and I don't think my armies can even stop them. So he feels threatened. So he goes to this guy, Balaam. And, and Balaam was this oracle person who, in the name of Yahweh, was, was known for blessing and cursing different things. And so he sends his guys to him, and through all this kind of crazy stuff, and there's a talking donkey, and, and they get rejected, and they get pulled back, he gets this guy, Balaam, and he gets him at the top of the hill, and he says, hey, I'm the wicked king of Moab. These Jews are a threat to me. I want you to curse them. And so he says, I want you to curse them and, and, and poison and compromise against what God has called them to do. And so this is what's happening now. Fast forward to the last book of the Bible. This is what's happening. Jesus is standing before the church in Pergamum, and he's saying, hey, you guys are letting these people in. The Nicolaitans were a little more foggy on them, but it was a very similar thing. It was the idea of compromising theology that said, hey, you can eat of the idol food and you can, you can worship some of those other idols and that's okay. And so because of that, the church in Pergamum was saying, hey, you know what? We're going to put our arms around these guys. And yeah, they don't, they don't believe our God, but we're going to put our arms around them. And we're also going to put our arms around the Nicolaitans. And yeah, they think we should worship false gods. And that's okay. We're, we're going to dabble in those things. And so they incorporated that into their church. And Jesus is saying, stop. Jesus is calling them out. He's saying, man, you guys, are, you guys are still calling yourself Christians. You're still taking the name of Christ, followers of Christ Jesus, but you are starting to compromise your theology in ways that are really, really dangerous. You are starting to compromise in ways that will lead to death. And the church at Pergamum was compromising truth and morality, and it was going to cost them so dearly. So let me, let me get this out of the way. Um, what we're going to see tonight is the danger of compromise. And so I, I want to make sure we know that not all compromise, and I'm not saying from the stage that all compromise is bad. Some compromise is really good, right? Like, for example, I would like to go to Chili's for every meal. However, my wife would not like to go to Chili's ever. Therefore, we never go to Chili's, right? <laughs> That's not true. We went once, like a month ago. And when we were done eating, she said, this is the last time we will go to Chili's. <laughs> but she's super sweet about it, and she's sweet to let me go to Chili's. Uh, but Chili's does suck, let's be honest. It does suck. I don't know why I like it. Anyway, um, Baker Brothers is where it's at, guys. Baker Brothers is where it's at. Okay, um, <laughs> Uh, okay, so uh, here's where we're going. So compromise is not inherently bad, right? Compromise is a, is a good thing in the right context. So when we talk about compromise in regards to what was happening in Revelation 2, we're talking about a compromise that leads to death. We're compromising morality and we're compromising theology and truth of who God is. That's what we're talking about with the danger of compromise. Uh, and when we compromise those things, uh, there is going to be death, and we're going to see that in... in uh, the rest of this part. But also, let me make this caveat. For truth to be something that is compromised, 
right? So if there is this view of truth that, oh man, you've compromised, you shouldn't have let these guys in, they were false teachers, you shouldn't have let this kind of idol worship in there, then there has to be an actual truth to compromise. And to be honest, unfortunately, we can't preach sermons and just assume everyone believes, um, yeah, of course, we all stand on truth. No, we have to. We have to start with the foundation that we believe there is truth. We believe that our God has said, this is what is good, this is what is right, this is what brings life, and this doesn't. And that our truth isn't subjective to whatever our culture says at the time. And so those are two major themes. So uh, let's bring this home to us. Let me, um, let me, first of all, make this observation. We are living in dangerous times. When I read and study the church of Pergamum and where they were living and, and the church and how they compromised, uh, friends, we are living in really dangerous times. We are surrounded as if you are a Christian in this room, you are constantly surrounded and, and berated with opportunities to compromise what God has said is good and life and right and to do what is not. Constantly surrounded by that from all different angles, um, there's temptation at every corner, and we, what we do is we begin to call sin okay. Uh, we begin to look at sin just like they did in Pergamum and say, you know what, that's not that bad. And for the sake of unity, let's just kind of put our arm around that as the church. And, you know, the holiness of God and what he says, ah, I just don't like being that direct, so I'm just, I'm just going to kind of put my arm around this and say it's okay. Or, or we begin to see lies and bad theology, and we call those things true. We say, well, yeah, that's, yeah let's, just, let's just adopt this. And yeah, that feels good. Let's do that. And so all of a sudden, our truth and our sin start to, start to sink in and they start to erode not only the body of Christ, but they start to erode your life and your spiritual life, which then affects all of you. Um, the, that compromises, that question, that questionable morality, that false doctrine, it creates that erosion. So look at what Jesus calls them to do. Verse 16, here's what he says. He's, he calls them out. And then here he says, verse 16, therefore repent. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The imagery right here that we see, guys, the imagery of the sword, right? We saw it at the beginning. Uh, remember as Jesus is describing himself in verse 12, this imagery is this beautiful picture that the sword of God is going to surgically cut out this compromised sin that has taken root. And the powerful sword of Jesus Christ is going to slice like a surgeon through this cancerous sin that has taken root. Repent, remove it, turn from your ways. This idea that the church and the believers and the followers of Christ should change their minds about what they're doing. What you're doing right now, it is creating cancerous, sinful, and I'm going to cut it out. And that's going to be death, and that's going to be nasty, and that's going to, be, that's going to get messy. So change your mind. Run from that. Turn from that. Because he's coming. Uh, so here, here's what I want to do now. I want to talk about two big headings before we really see the application that Jesus is going to lay out. And there are two big headings of compromise that, that we're going to camp out on. Um, we see it real clearly that the Nicolaitans, right, and the Balaamites, their bad theology is being pushed in Pergamum, right? They're showing up in the church and they're pushing their bad theology. Yeah, idol worship's okay, it's not that bad, and you can do this, and they're starting to tweak the theology of what the church was originally uh, founded on. So for us, I want to camp out for a second. There's just two of these I'm going to camp out on, and the first one is this. 
It's a great source of our compromise, and the compromise that's going to rob you of life and spirit and fruit is this. It's bad theology. Bad theology that we see in this church is starting to take root in a way that's going to end up destroying the church and destroying those who end up subscribing to that, right? And so that's happening in the church. And so for us as believers, we have to look at that and we have to say, okay, how do we wrap our minds around bad theology? And it's, so I mean, this is, this is what was happening contextually there in Revelation 2. And so what does that look like for us? It looks like for us to hunger and thirst and challenge ourselves to say, how does our theology reflect that of who Christ really is? We are called to conform to God, not force God to conform to us. We're called to conform to who God is. Rather than creating a theology of who God is and how he interacts and how we should interact with him that we like, we conform to him. He doesn't conform to us. And, and I've heard critiques of this before where um, what we do is we look at the scripture to find that. This is our foundation of truth. This is what we stand on. And I've heard critiques that say, man, you know what? I just don't. I just don't like putting God in a box, man. I just don't like putting God in a box. And I, I get that, and I don't want to put God in a box. But I want to see God for who he reveals himself to be because we believe that this is the revealed word of God and how he has chosen to reveal himself to us. So for those who say, well, man, I don't want to put God in a box, okay, well, that's fine. So how are you getting your view of God? So how are you finding who God is so that you might have proper theology? Because theology is a fancy, big big Scrabble score word that just means to know God. And so how are you knowing God correctly? And how are you sure that you're not incorporating some of that in your life if not from the scriptures? And if it's not from scripture, if you can't back it up here, if you can't look and you can't unpack, and this, this is hard to do. I mean, there's people who spend their whole life and they still disagree and they're buried in here. So it's not this necessarily always easy thing, but it's a lifestyle of saying, I want to submit to this rather than, well, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow the God that I want. I'm going to create a God that conforms to how I want. Or I'm going to create a God based on how I feel God should look. Or how I think God should look in the culture I live in. Man, I don't really feel super comfortable with that kind of a God because he seems kind of mean. And I don't know. I don't really like that. So I'm just going to kind of cut out the parts of the mean God. And I'm just going to go with this God. And I'm going to create the God that I want. That I feel comfortable with. Or that I, I think I've experienced. And so our feelings and our experience trump the word of God as to how we shape who he is. We look at the Bible. We study it. We dig into it. We surround ourselves with other people who study it, who maybe push back and have different perspectives. And we, we spend our life saying, Lord, how do we know you? Theology, man, if you, if you even just heard this section of the sermon and you're like, theology, man, like, I don't, like, theology is not really my thing, like, I really just want to worship Jesus, man. Like, I just want to worship Jesus and tell people about Jesus. And, like, I don't want to get hung up on this theology. I don't want to debate. I just want to worship and tell people about Jesus. I love you so much, man. I do. And I think you are such an important part of the kingdom of God. And I think there's so many other people I would like to introduce you to that have great theology and no passion, no evangelism. And I would love for you to rub off on them. But also, I would say, man, that's really dangerous. Because theology is to know God. Uh, my old pastor used to use this illustration. I'm sure I've used it here before. But it would be like me talking about the love I have for my wife. And say, man, I love my wife so much. Gosh, I love her. I just want to spend all of my time with her. She's the best. And I'm up here talking to you about her. And, and I'm just describing her. And Man, she is awesome. And she is an amazing mom. And she, she's awesome. Let me tell you about it. She's got this beautiful, like, kind of bobbed red hair, you know. And then she's got, like, green eyes. And she's got, like, a 
Irish accent and like huge muscles. She's incredible, right? And you'd be like, those of you who know my wife would be like, wow, he seems really in love. Like he seems really passionate and like he really likes his wife, but who he described is not his wife, right? Like that was some neat description terms, but like my wife is a brunette with dark brown eyes and she has no muscle. No, I'm just kidding. She has, <laughs> she has the perfect, she has the perfect amount of muscle. Um, the perfect amount of muscle. Um, she, she cranked out two kids, guys. She's a hoss, all right? Um, uh, so, right, so do you, do you understand? Do you understand what, what the sentiment of, man, I just love Jesus, but I don't really care about theology. What that says is, I just love the feeling of Jesus, but I don't actually care that I'm actually knowing and worshiping him. So if you say you really love worshiping Jesus, but you don't love theology, you don't really love worshiping the true Jesus, right? Like, I'm just telling you lovingly, if you say, man, I just love worshiping Jesus, but I don't really care about theology stuff, you don't care about worshiping the true Jesus, and I want you to worship the true Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that every theology, like, theology books can be super boring, right? I'm not saying you should read theology books and be excited. And so maybe you're wired in a way, but you should find a way to make understanding who God is and how he operates and, and how he functions and how, and how his spirit works and how his son and how the Trinity works and, and all that stuff. And we should study that and look at it and stare at it and wrestle with it in a way that, yes, is challenging. And yes, it's less emotionally, like, invigorating, but it leads to deeper worship. Good theology should lead to really, really good, sweet, sweet worship. And if you've got worship but you don't want theology, please, brothers, stop and look at Revelation 2 and look at this church and look what Jesus specifically calls them out on. Guys, you've let this bad theology and it's shaping and it's going to erode you. Hold tight to that. Surround yourself with other people. It's not boxes you're going to check. It's not going to come easy. You don't have to agree with all of my theology, but wrestle to find truth here and wrestle to find who is Jesus more and more and more in the same way that I am continuing to get to know my wife. I'm continuing to learn who she is and what makes her tick and how she's wired and all of those things. We have an infinite, infinite God that we will never arrive on. We will never settle on. Oh, all the theological categories have now clicked in my head. I now have a perfect view of who God is. That won't ever happen. But that is the beautiful pursuit that we get in this lifetime to try to figure out what the shape of God really is more and more. So that first big heading is theology. And let me give you an example of, uh, of how that plays out. Uh, let me give you an example of just kind of a way that bad theology happens and, and how it can affect uh, some stuff. So you can have bad theology, and so one of the things that could happen is you could say, man, I believe that God is just, God is just all about love. Except your theology might be that love is just side hugs for everybody. And that love is just, man, he doesn't care about sin. He doesn't look, man, like your sin, his sin. No, God's not like that. God loves everyone. Your sin isn't that big of a deal. He's just so happy. God is, Jesus is Santa Claus. He's just Santa Claus and he's just a, a genie that wants to grant wishes for you. And he's just, and so you might fall into that or churches might fall into that or believers might fall into that or, or subtly not even realizing that you've shaped this wrong view of who God is. And that's affecting your worship and that's affecting how you follow him. Because our God is all about love. But as we've talked about even this semester, love is not just all about tolerance. Love is about truth and grace. And it's this beautiful picture between he hates sin. He despises sin. He hates it. 
But he also is crazy about grace and has offered grace for those who surrender their life. And then the weight and the punishment of that sin isn't on us, so praise God for that. But for others, they're still under God's wrath in, in ways that we should love them enough to tell them. Second big theme, second and last big theme here uh, that I want to talk about that kind of causes us to start sp- stumbling into the dangerous kind of compromise is this. So the first one was, if you remember, bad theology. We see that in, in Revelation 2 with these two heretical camps joining. Bad theology. The second one is this, and it's weak faith. Pergamum was planted in a place where you've got persecution left and right. I mean, these believers are surrounded by other they're surrounded by their enemies. Their, their, their fearless church leader was killed. Uh, a lot of them witnessed the death of him, most likely. And so there is a level of fear that I'm sure has sept, seeped into their culture where they are adopting these things. They're compromising, not just because of bad theology, because they weren't well-informed, but because of a lack of faith, a weak faith they have. So the question is, do I believe God is enough? The question for us as believers, the question for them, the question all followers of Christ have to ask is this faith question of, man, do I really believe the promises of God? Do I really believe that God is enough for me? Or do I need something else? Or do I need to find my affirmation? Do I need to find my my God some other way? Um, Can I just tell you about a little bit of my own sin for a second? Um, Throughout my life, um, and especially as a, as a young man, really wrestled with lust. Um, and when I say wrestle, I mean like I was getting my butt kicked by it. Um, you know, lust was this thing that I would wander into and find uh, satisfaction in because I didn't trust God's timing uh, for when he wanted to provide um, a wife, for when he wanted to provide. And so I would wander into these things to find gratification in my own way because I didn't trust that his way was enough. And, and lust, and man, for those of you guys and girls who are stuck in that and struggle in that, man, that's so pervasive. And, and, it's, and it's a lust issue, but it's an issue of, is God enough? And really, it's a faith issue. And it's a, man, do we trust that God's way is better? Do we trust that how God has set up sex to work, um, how he has set up the body to work, how he has set up this gratification that we're designed to have to work, do we believe that he is better? Do we believe he's worth waiting for? Do we believe that his way is better? Do we believe, do we see the opposite sex in the way that he has created them as opposed to the way that maybe just caters to our sinful mind or the, the mind that wants to, wants to please ourself? Um, man, the other, the other thing, I have a bunch of sin, but the other one I, I was gonna bring up today uh, is control too, man. And this is a wicked satanic sin where I just struggle with this idea of I need to be in control. And if I'm not doing it, if I'm not building it or or having my hands in it, or if I'm not working hard to produce what needs to be produced, then it won't happen because I I wrestle with this this faith that God is actually in control and God is enough and God will do it. No, 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 Ben has to do it. And so it shows up in my marriage and it shows up with how I disciple my kids. It shows up how I lead others. And this wicked sin of I want to be in control because I don't trust God. I don't trust God to, 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 be, to, to provide for my children. No, I've, I've got to fix everything, and I've got to control everything, and I've got to make sure, and I've got to build his ministry. And it's this wicked lie that I believe, and so I have to take that, and I have to say, Lord, would I surrender this control, and would you increase my faith? I want you to identify that in your life tonight. I want you to 
pick on some things in your life and say, Lord, man, what are some of those areas in my life that I am compromising and wandering into because of my lack of faith? Ways that I'm compromising because maybe I don't really believe you're enough. Maybe deep down there's some spots where it's like, man, my faith is weak there. And Lord, I need more faith. Uh, maybe it's provision and job and career and that whole thing. And maybe you're in the season, whether you're looking for that or that's on the horizon, okay, I need to find a job that that's going to be my identity. Or I need to have this career. I need to make enough money to that's what's going to make me successful. If I can make enough money, then that's where my success and my satisfaction will come. And that's a lie. It's, it comes from a lack of faith. And so we start compromising. And maybe you, maybe you cheat on some things. Maybe you steal. Maybe you fudge your taxes because, oh, man, who cares about this? And, and all of a sudden, you start compromising sin because of a lack of faith that you you need to provide for yourself and you can't just work hard and be faithful and be a good steward and trust that God is gonna provide like he says he is, like he says he is. Um, he is enough. Maybe it's, maybe it's immediate gratification. Maybe it is um, you're, you're stuck in this place where uh, whether, it's, whether it's sex or whether it's pornography or whether it's alcohol or drugs or these things that we find immediate gratification in, you know, these things that medicate us, whatever that might be for you, um, we say, well, man, is Jesus enough? Or do I need to run to these things to medicate me? Do I need to run and find my identity and my peace and my satisfaction in these things because that's, because Jesus' healing isn't gonna be quick enough. It's not gonna gratify me quickly enough. And so this lack of faith, sweet sister, maybe brother in this room, maybe it's an eating disorder. And you say, I don't trust the who the Lord made me to be right now is good enough and I need to take that into my own hands and I don't trust him that he calls me beautiful and he says that I am his and he says that you are, you are my daughter and he looks at me and says, you're my daughter and you are beautiful because I say you're beautiful because the God of the universe who keeps the, the tides at bay and, and, and revolves the earth and holds all things together by the power of his might, says that you as his daughter or you as his son, his creation is good. You say, no, I, I'm comparing myself to, no, it's not good. And, and we wrestle with this trust. Is he enough? Is what he says about you enough? Um, maybe it's relationships. Uh, maybe it's relationships and good relationships too. You know, it's not just, it's a desire to have a relationship. Man, we're in a culture that is getting married later and later and later and later in life. Um, and so maybe there's this compromising fear in you that says, I don't want to be alone. This isn't what I expected. I had different expectations for my life and for my relational status, and here I am. And so because of that, maybe we start to compromise, and we start to say, okay, I, I'm just going to settle for this. Now, I think there's some areas, honestly, lovingly, I, I think that need to be compromised because I think there's some ways that we look at relationships and we have these idols we have these worldly perspectives that we put. Some of my sisters in this room have Pinterest boards of their dream guy, right? And maybe you need to let go of that because maybe that's from Satan, right? <laughs> like maybe you have created an expectation of what your engagement photos are that is not really from the Lord and not really you trusting him. And you think, wow, but my engagement photo, I always pictured him being brunette, but this guy's blonde, nah, <laughs> Right? Like, there are some ways that I think probably worldly that we're looking through that you actually do need to walk back to, why am I overvaluing these things? And start seeing your brothers in a different way. And holy crap, men, same thing for you. 
right? I mean, we, we are so saturated with what it's supposed to look like and all these expectations of, well, this is what my, this is what my partner should look like and how she should act and all of those things. And we're, our minds are constantly hit with those images that we've got to, no, that's not from the Lord. Is that, really a, is that really a deal breaker? And some of those things I think we hold on to are just worldly, but then there's other areas that we don't compromise in. I, I hear story after story um, of specifically sisters of mine who, um, who ha- are settling, who are settling for a relationship with somebody that, a guy who doesn't love Jesus, doesn't know Jesus, isn't pushing them towards Christ, but the fear and the, the lack of trust, but I don't want to be alone. This isn't what I, I didn't think I would be this age and still, so I'm going to settle and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to introduce some of these things, and I'm going to be okay with this, and I'm going to maybe, I'm going to maybe settle in the relationship in some ways and, and give in to some things because, let me tell you, I, the worst thing is not you getting married at an older age than what your expectations were. The worst thing is not that you don't get married. I think it would be way worse It is way worse to marry somebody who doesn't love Jesus and you've entered into a covenant with them, somebody who is not pushing you towards Christ, somebody who you have settled for and now you're in a covenant relationship with somebody and I'm not talking about the peripheral stuff, I'm talking about core things in in what we're called to do in in being equally yoked with another follower of Christ. And you said, well, I'm just gonna de-emphasize that and it's not that big of a deal because I don't wanna be alone. So you step into a relationship that's going to be a disaster because we don't trust that maybe God is enough. Maybe God is enough in that season. And gosh, I get it. That is such an easy thing to preach at you for. But it is daily a fight to say, I don't want to compromise, Lord. I, I believe you are enough. I trust you. I want more of you. And to not settle. To not settle in those ways that God has called you to follow hard. And so specifically to my sisters, find a guy who loves Jesus and submits to Jesus. And you'll know he submits to Jesus in the way that he interacts with Jesus's people, in the way he interacts with the church, in the way that he interacts with other ministers and pastors and, and other brothers in Christ, and that he walks in the light as Christ is in the light. Find that. And maybe compromise like the brunette blonde thing or the six pack or like, you know, maybe some of those things need to be dialed down. But don't, don't settle, don't compromise. I'm finding somebody that loves Jesus and men also. Finding a woman who will love Jesus and spur you on to that. Um, so easy to say that. Uh, I get it. And in the interim, trusting that God is enough. So easy to say. So easy to preach at. Lord, give us that faith. Give us that faith just tonight that he is enough in all these areas. And then tomorrow morning, we're going to be at your table asking for that same faith again. And the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And we're just going to feed on that daily bread of faith more and more and more. Repent, he says. The God of the universe is calling you to something better, guys. The God of the universe is calling you to something better. This idea of repenting from whatever it is that you're compromising into. He's calling you to something better. And listen, to compromise is to settle for something less. Maybe more immediately gratifying, maybe more emotional, but it won't last. Repent, change your mind, correct your theology of who he is, and then restore your faith that he is enough for you. He is enough for you. The last part of this section, last part of uh, Jesus' words to this church say, to the one who conquers, 
So one who perseveres, the one who conquers, to you who conquer, I will give some kind of hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Um, we see this picture of manna that the Lord is encouraging us, persevere, conquer through these, this sin, this compromise, this world you live in. Persevere, and if you conquer through, I will be there, and I will give you this manna. We see manna as this thing in the Old Testament that God's provision, he was enough for his people, the Israelites. Every day he gave them manna, he gave them this bread from heaven. Every day he provided for them, and he was enough. And when we think, but what, what about in two years? No, what about tomorrow morning? Is he gonna be enough tomorrow morning? Yes, and rest in that and lean in that. And this beautiful idea of, uh, I will give you a white stone with a new name written on it, and that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it uh, is this picture of admittance into his kingdom, uh, and the way they use stones, and then the way they also use stones to remember key things of, of God's salvation in their life. They would take stones from these, um, these, these important times in, in how God has saved them throughout their history as, as followers of Christ or, or even in the Jewish uh, context in the Old Testament, they would take those stones and they'd put them someplace and they were called Ebenezer stones and they were stones of remembrance. And they'd look at those stones and be like, man, I remember. I remember when, when God parted the seas and we walked through it and we picked up that stone and that stone sits on my mantle and I remember that God is enough. I remember that God is enough and that Ebenezer stone of remembrance, that he is enough. He hasn't let you down. He won't let you down. He is good. He is enough for you. So let's not compromise. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you. Uh, we love you for who you truly are, Lord. And we desire to continue to see that more and more. Would we not, would we not grow complacent uh, in our relationship with you? Would we always dig deeper and deeper and surround ourselves and fight to know you more for who you really are and worship you in spirit and in truth? And then, Father, would you give us the faith? God, that is a work of Jesus Christ to do that and so, Lord, we need your, your help. Father, go before us and give us the faith um, to believe that you're enough, to know that you're enough, uh, to trust you, Lord. Thank you, Father, for the word that you've given us. Thank you for your spirit that, that illuminates it for us. Uh, we love you and we desire to live lives that are worthy of your calling, Father. In the name of Jesus.